You know, it's election season. Uh, everywhere I go, I see all these campaign ads. In fact, I was talking to somebody. I think Leah and I actually were talking originally about, uh, about one of the candidates uh, a week or two ago because this person was on the news. And, and I, I said, I don't know, we just mentioned the name, not that we supported this person. And all of a sudden, all these Google ads start showing up uh, on my phone uh, from this candidate. And so jokingly, uh, I said to the Google spies, I'm not going to vote for that candidate, so you might as well not, uh, not show me any more uh, ads for that candidate. Well, then I haven't seen another ad for that candidate, but now I'm seeing ads for another candidate. And, and so, uh, so they're everywhere, everywhere you go. And I remember uh, when I think I was in first grade, second grade, 1984, when President Reagan was in his reelection campaign, and there was a commercial that he had that is now really infamous. And in his commercial, he warns of the dangers of compromising certain principles in order to maintain the peace. And in his commercial, uh, there is this deep voice of a narrator that says, there is a bear in the woods. For some people, the bear is easy to see. Others don't see it at all. Some people say the bear is tame, and others say it's vicious and dangerous. It reminds me of an old story I heard many years ago of a, of a, of a hunter that was out, uh, out in the woods and decided he was going to shoot him a bear. And so found that bear and he drew his rifle up and, and took aim. And, and right at that moment the bear uh, begins to speak to this, this hunter. And the bear in a soft, soothing voice says, Now, now, now can't we talk about this? The bear says, can't, can't, we, can't we compromise on something? I mean, isn't it better to, uh, to talk it out than to fight it out? And, and so the, the, the hunter says, well, listen, he says, uh, it's very easy for me. What I want is a fur coat. And the bear says, well, look, I, I'm just out in the woods looking for something to eat. I want a full stomach. Maybe we can sit down and talk about this. And again, it was real soothing and soft in his voice. And he convinced the hunter to sit down next to him and to negotiate a compromise. Well, at the end of the negotiation, I will tell you uh, that the compromise was highly successful. Wouldn't you know it? Because when it was all over, that old bear had a full stomach and the farmer finally had his fur coat. Because the bear had eaten him. There are many bears that are out there. They're dangerous for us to uh, nudge up against. You can't just cuddle with, a, with, a, with an, a black bear up here like you can your teddy bear when you are a kid. Churches are, are, are filled with people. And, 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 and yes, we do need to compromise at times. And yes, there have been churches in the past who have um, become like the uh, church at Ephesus where they had become so legalistic that they were not loving. There are some churches that have taken hard stands on stuff that really does not matter. I just want you to know, I realize that there are churches out there who take hard stands on things that really do not matter. But at the same time, there are other churches out there who have begun to, uh, uh, to, to embrace the bear of bad doctrines. Because, 
you know, we, we, we remember that churches are filled with people, but nevertheless, they are to be governed by the Word of God. Just as the Constitution of the United States uh, is the ultimate guide for how our government governs and the policies of our government, so much more the Word of God should govern the operation of a church. And so, uh, so the Word of God is key here. And as we, as, as we drop into Scripture, we're in Revelation 2 again. We are looking at the letter to Pergamum in verse 12. And uh, Jesus shows up and writes this letter, this message specifically to the, the church at Pergamum. And he doesn't use this phrase, but what he is telling them, and we're going to see this illustrated as we read this, he is warning them never to compromise the truth. There are certain things that you cannot compromise as a church. And the things that are dogmatically clearly stated in the Word of God, you cannot compromise. They had begun to really embrace some very dangerous doctrines. And so we're going to look at this, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12 and reading down to verse 17. Now remember, these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> right to the angel of the church in Pergamum, the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to, to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Scripture says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father, we pray that today, Father, that, that, that your word would be evident, God, that, that you would help us to understand what it is you have for us here. Father, help us to understand the characteristics of a Christ who warns us not to compromise on the things that matter most. And Father, may we glorify you in those things. In Jesus' name, amen. As we see some of the characteristics of this Jesus who comes with this message, number one, we see that he is a Christ who comprehends. He comprehends your situation. Jesus says, I know, some of your translations may say, I know your works and where you live. Jesus is saying, I know your situation. Specifically, he says, that you live, talking about Pergamum, he says you all live in a place where literally the, the throne of Satan exists. And, and Jesus says, I understand your experience. You know, a lot of people uh, justify their actions by the context of their experience. And listen, that is 
human. That's human nature. We, we all have done that. I mean, how many of you have ever justified a decision with, uh, with, with thinking, you know, most people just don't understand what I have been through? You know, you know uh, people, if, 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 you, if you walked a mile in, in, in my boots, then, then you would understand why I make the decisions that I make. And listen, that, that's true with other people, okay? You can, you can disagree with another person on, on, on something and with preferences and things like that based on your experience, but you cannot disagree with Jesus based on your experience. So, so before Jesus uh, gives them certain commands, he says, I already know. I know what you are going through. I, I, I know uh, your struggles. I know the strengths of your situation. I know the weakness of your situation. We have to understand that we serve a Christ who knows. He says, I know that you live in a city that is devoted to evil. This is a city where Satan's throne is. He's saying, I know you live in a city that's hostile to the gospel, that's hostile to Christianity. Jesus knows that the Pergamites, that they live in a culture that is hard to reach because the culture is so consumed with demon worship and paganism. In fact, if you you study the city of Pergamum in those days, um, of course it was a province of Rome, uh, but you'll see on their coinage... You know, a lot of things, it tells you a lot of things, what what nations and cultures put on their money. It tells you a lot about them, okay? On the Pergamum money, one side, often you would find a serpent. It was a serpent. That was the symbol of the community. Hey, remember who it was, what it was that first deceived Adam and Eve? It was a serpent. We see a lot of these things, and, and uh, that was one of the main symbols for the country. This was a city, Pergamum was a city that had, had a portion of the city that was down in the valley and in a portion of the city that was up in the hills. All the rich, wealthy people, people of influence lived up in the hills because the further up you were, the more fortified you were. You could see attacks coming. You knew more about what was going on. And, and, and up there in those hills as well is where many of the pagan temples were. Uh, you could go. I saw pictures of this. I wish I would have brought some, but I've seen some pictures of this. And you could go up on this hill and see this very beautiful sight. But yet in the midst of all the, the beauty that you could see, there was a lot of evil that was going on. And so if you were a Christian who, uh, who, who was not a person of high influence in Pergamum, you probably lived down in the valley. You looked all the time, different places you looked. Every time you looked up, there was smoke billowing up from demon worship, offering sacrifices to false gods and demon gods. And you can imagine how frustrating and how disheartening that would have been uh, there was a, there was a, a temple uh, there there were altars to Caesar to Athena there was a temple to Athena outside of Athena's temple was uh, what they called the altar of Zeus which also was known as the throne of Zeus It was the altar of Zeus or the throne of Zeus or the throne of Satan, if you will, where uh, the uh, Christian believer Antipas was martyred there in Pergamum, believed to be burned alive on the altar of Zeus for all 
to see just a couple years prior to the writing of this letter. This was fresh in their minds. And Jesus says, I get it. I know what you're going through. I know where you live. In fact, it was the altar of Zeus there in a modern day Pergamum. Uh, that uh, that that uh, on September the fifteenth, nineteen thirty-five, Adolf Hitler introduced the Nuremberg Laws and what he called the final solution that first began with the stripping of all German Jews, stripped them of their citizenship, and then eventually led to and included the Holocaust of six million ethnically and religiously Jewish people. You see, folks, Pergamum was an evil city. It was evil. It had a history of evil and it had a future of evil. We understand when Jesus says, I know where you live, he's not playing around. He says, I know, I get it. It's hard to be a Christian. I, I know that, that, uh, that you have not denied your faith in Christ. He says, I know your works. I, I, I know Antipas. And, and Antipas was, was uh, martyred for his faith. He says, I get it. It's hard to be a Christian. But then he goes on after he shows us that he comprehends. We also see that he is a Christ who commands. And look at verses 14 through 16. He says, but I have a few things against you. He says, you're not doing everything horribly, but but you're doing some things very wrong. He says, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, uh, which, uh, uh, which taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, which uh, led them to uh, eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. And in the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent. He says, otherwise I'm going to come down and I'm going to judge you with the word of God. That's, the, that's the, the sword of his mouth. Just so you know, he's talking about the word. What these people, one of their number one needs is they need a God who understands their dilemma, but they also need to understand the word of God. They need a, a word of comfort and they need a word of command. They need a, a word of comprehension and a word of command as well. And so he says, repent. Because here's what was going on. There were two prominent false teachers in Pergamum in that day. Okay, he mentions them. Uh, well, there were teachers who followed, there were people who followed the teachings of Balaam and followed the teachings of Nicholas. Now, these, these teachers were not actually there. These were people who followed their teachings. Balaam is an Old Testament prophet. Okay, And I want you to understand that Balaam... Is, uh, uh, is, is a prophet who brought the word of God to the people of God, but because his heart was not right with God, he sinned against God, and he, uh, he devised a way for his own, his own selfish, political, when you hear Balaam, you think political reasons, for his own selfish political reasons, he devised a way to appease an evil king without directly disobeying specific instructions that God had given to him. There was a Moabite king. He says, I want you to 
uh, publicly curse the people of Israel, which essentially would give me free reign and excuse to go in and, and attack them with our military. God had told Balaam very, very specifically, you will not curse Israel. Uh, Israel, these are my people, and I have certain promises for them. And so he knew enough not to directly go against God. But you know what he did? He did what a lot of us do. He says, boy, I wonder if I could figure out a loophole here. And so what he figured is that, uh, is that uh, he could not do anything to, uh, to uh, trigger the Moabite invasion to destroy Israel. But he taught the Moabites how to lure the Israelites into sin so that they would be destroyed from within. What he did is he went to them and he taught them how to, uh, taught the Moabite women how to entice the Israelite men through, uh, through prostitution and through sins of lust. He also, he also taught them how to um, manipulate the Israelites into worshiping false gods, the false gods, the evil gods, pagan gods of the Moabites. This was all a political ploy. This was all about Balaam's desire for some political gain and political favor from the Moabite king, okay? And, and so, so Jesus says, Jesus says, you got some in here that are following the teachings of Balaam, and, and that's not right. He also says there's some in here that are trying to teach the, the, the Nicolaitan teachings. You see, Balaam was an Old Testament prophet who, who had uh, walked an alternate direction from the Word of God. Nicholas is believed to have been a, a New Testament convert who fell prey to, um, to a, 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 a false teaching of the time called Gnosticism. <clears throat> now Gnosticism has to do with a, you know, having a secret special knowledge. There's more to it than that, but the very basis of Gnosticism Gnosis, okay, it means knowledge. Uh, it's that all, idea of having a secret, special knowledge about God and certain things. Hey, you know, we used to think like that until we became more enlightened. You know, that's, that's the, the Gnostic way of looking at things. And so, uh, so he, uh, he was lured away, Nicholas was. And so in the New Testament, the Nicolaitans were conforming to the pagan Roman culture. You think about Nicolaitans, you think about culture, okay? Uh, Balaam conforms to the political, um, uh, po political uh, aspirations of an outside king. Uh, but the Nicolaitans, uh, they give themselves over to cultural uh, aspirations and cultural principles and things that are popular in culture and, and in that time the, the big thing in the way that they would do that is they would encourage Christians because they were doing this as well and they would encourage believers um, to, to go and to not be afraid to eat uh, meat uh, offered to idols. Well, the problem was is that in Pergamum, in order to get to that meat, you had to go up, ascend the hill, and go to the temple, and you had to participate in that worship. In fact, 
One of the things, you remember, that every Roman citizen was required to do was to burn some incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, in order to have a certificate of good standing in their government. And so you had to go, and on some level, you had to participate in that pagan worship. And the Nicolaitans were saying, that's no big deal. It's, it's, it's no big deal at all. But what was the result of, of all of those things? The result was dangerous and unrighteous sins that dishonored God and his word. And Jesus mentions both of them, or two of them, in this passage. Okay, He talks about the two false teachers, and here's the two sins that he talks about. He, he, he talks about the sin of idol worship and the sin of sexual immorality. Let's talk about idol worship first. Idol worship, just, just, just the plainest, simplest definition, is when you worship anything else that is not the one true God. Idol worship is where you say something, whatever it is, is more important than my relationship with God. It's when you worship anything else, when, when whatever that is becomes the highest priority in your life, and when you are willing to compromise biblical commands in order to gain some sort of benefit from Whatever it is that you are doing, you may not be worshiping at the throne of the devil with horns and a pitchfork. You might not be sitting, you know, in a circle with candles, you know, humming and, and chanting to Satan. But Scripture says that if anything, anything, anything is more important to you than God is, then that is an idol. We we see that they were participating in idol worship. And listen, in those days, they bowed down to these images and these pictures and statues. But today, really, the main altar that we bow down to is the altar of self. Because we're kind of selfish as people, aren't we? Uh, you know, whatever makes me happy, whatever benefits me the most, whatever wins me favor with this group of people, whatever makes sense to me, it's all about me, 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 my journey, my truth, my story, my desire, my happiness. Jesus says, you've got to repent of that way of thinking because that's going to lead you to unrighteousness. Are there times when... When, uh, when we enjoy our faith, absolutely. There are times when God is going to lead you to do things and you're going to be like, I am so glad that God led me to do that. He allowed me to do that. Man, you're going to be so amped up because of it. But there will be times when God leads you and calls you to do something that is hard. And in those days... The principle outweighs the pragmatism. The principle of this is the right thing outshines and outweighs the importance of, of the practical um, reality of my comfort or what I want or what makes me happy today. You have to repent of, of worshiping idols. He also tells them to repent of sexual immorality. Just like the teachings of Balaam led the people of God in the Old Testament to embrace a lifestyle of immorality in Pergamum, there were some teachers leading others to embrace similar lifestyles. 
See, the, 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 the followers of Balaam were, were, uh, were the ones that were saying, Oh, listen, like you, you don't have to get married. You know, uh, the, the followers of Balaam were, were the ones saying, Well, you know, in the old days, marriage was between a man and a woman. But, uh, you know, these are modern times and things are a-changing, right? Those were, the, those were the followers of Balaam. Those were the kinds of things that they would, have, they would have taught because the followers of Balaam were teaching people and leading people in the church to embrace um, an immorality. And, and what, what we mean by sexual immorality, just so you understand, is, it's defined scripturally. Uh, the best definition of it is, is uh, any sexual contact or sexual experience outside the bonds of a biblical marriage. And then, of course, today we need to qualify that by saying, lovingly saying, that the Bible teaches that a biblical marriage involves a covenant between one man and one woman. Okay, And so anything outside the bonds of, of that marriage, uh, that kind of uh, experience or uh, contact... It's considered immorality. Yet there were people in the church at Pergamum who had been... that They had not directly denied the lordship of Jesus. Listen to me. There were people who were not denying the lordship of Christ. But they were undermining his lordship with their lifestyle, with embracing uh, immorality. And so... Uh, we have to understand, say, what's the big deal? Why, why do so many people and all these preachers talk so much about marriage? Why is marriage such a big deal? Well, let me explain to you why marriage is such a big deal. Not that everybody has to get married. I'm not saying that. But what I am telling you is that the relationship between a husband and a wife is a big deal because it is symbolic. It is the relationship that God has given unto us that most symbolizes the relationship that God has with his church. That's why in scripture, believers, and in the book of Revelation as well, are referred to as the bride of Christ. And so uh, there are certain, certain commitments that come with that relationship. And so any physical intimacy outside of marriage... Uh, it not only violates God's intention, but it distorts the institution created to reflect the Lord's relationship with His church. Much the same way as when you and I, whatever it might be, when we uh, say that we are believers created in the image of God, and yet we walk apart from the principles of God, we are distorting the image of God. We are distorting the message uh, that God wants to portray to the world uh, uh, about who He is and what He is and His love and His grace and His, His principles and all of those things. Jesus says, repent of that idol worship. He says, repent of immorality and re repent of all forms of immorality. Listen, we are living in a culture today in a world where people do not see the danger and sitting down to negotiate with the bear of bad doctrine. Compromising, many of them, biblical truth for political correctness. Many churches 
and denominations who still affirm the lordship of Jesus, many of them who would still tell you, yes, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, they, they still affirm the lordship of Jesus, but they do not honor him in what they teach in their doctrines about marriage, family, gender identity, physical, spiritual purity, and you could, you could go on with other things because I'm sure you could find something wrong with everybody, including us, okay? Uh, but, but, but we have to understand that we cannot sit down and negotiate with a bear. You know what the sad thing is about Pergamum today? You know, we talked about Smyrna last week. You go to Smyrna today, guess what? There's a church there. There's not a whole lot of churches there, but there's a church there. In Pergamum today, you see, we can look at it and we can see that when they sat down to negotiate with the bear, the bear ate them. Because today, there's no church in Pergamum. Just a legacy of bad doctrine. And so we must fight to not compromise doctrines that are clearly stated in the Word of God. In Pergamum, that, that, that legacy of bad doctrine was brought about by political and cultural compromises. And so we need to guard ourselves against that. Listen, only the foolish person says, it can't happen to me, it'll never happen to us, it won't happen in my family, it'll never happen in my church, my denomination will never let that happen. Listen, folks, when we deviate from scriptural doctrine, anything, anything is possible. Christ comprehends the situation of Pergamum. He commands their repentance, but... Lastly, he comforts with heavenly promises. He says to the one who conquers, I will give hidden manna. Here he gives three heavenly promises. I want to go through them with you really quickly. The first one is this, is, is the hidden manna. In the book of Exodus, God rained down manna from heaven and that manna sustained and strengthened the Israelites for 40 years as they wandered in the desert. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus is the manna from God. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says to the Israelites, your ancestors, talking about in Exodus, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. The, this bread is my flesh, which I give for life of the world. And he goes on to say, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Ever. Whoever feeds will live forever. The manna sustained the Israelites in the Old Testament and that foreshadowed uh, Jesus coming to sustain us in this life. And then Jesus, while he's here, promises a manna in heaven, which is an is a eternal uh, uh, sustaining and, and uh, an eternal strengthening. He is the living bread of heaven. This Jesus that we see in Revelation 2, and that he brings eternal life to any and all who would accept, who would receive that bread unto 
themselves. It's interesting, it's interesting in, its, in its context as Jesus is talking to this church and they have the Nicolaitans in the church because Jesus says it's a secret manna. You know, the Nicolaitans were always talking about a secret knowledge, you know, a new knowledge that nobody knew about. And Jesus says, you want to know what a secret is? A secret in that you can't see it today, but in heaven is waiting for those who trust in Christ everlasting strength and everlasting sustainability. There is a God who loves you. So he promises them this manna. The second thing he promises them is a white stone. Now there's a lot of a lot of symbolism, many, many illustrations of what they would have understood with the white stone. But I'm going to give you the one that I think Jesus is probably most emphasizing in this verse, although he could be emphasizing two or three with this reference. But but because he talks about the victor and the one who conquers, I think that he's talking about the stone that was given to the winner of an athletic competition when they would come together and they would compete as athletes and someone would win that competition, uh, the king or the magistrate or the administrator, whoever it was, would award the victor with a white stone. And that white stone was taken by the victor and uh, sometime after the competition there was a banquet held to have a celebration of the victory. And the victor would take that white stone and that would be their ticket to get in to the banquet. You know, I'm reminded of that passage the, uh, the, the, the wife says in Song of Solomon. It says uh, uh, that he has brought me to his banqueting table and his banner over me is love. There is a banqueting table and God's banner is love and it is available to any and all who would trust in him. And Jesus is saying, there is heaven awaiting. I'm promising you a ticket. In fact, uh, in Revelation, I believe it's 21, it talks about uh, anyone whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that they're the ones that enter in to the heavenly gates. And so if, if, if Jesus gives you that white stone, that means that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It also means something else. Uh, and this is the third promise because uh, he, he talks about that man, he talks about the stone, but he says on the stone I'm going to write a new name. On it, you see those, 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 those victors when they got their reward, a name was written on it. Sometimes it was their name, sometimes it was some other name, but that stone, so that anybody who just picked up a white stone couldn't get in, it had to have that name written on it to get into the banquet. It was a new name. Many times it was a new name. Listen to me, if. If, if Christ has given you that white stone, it means your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But listen, this is also what it means. It means that you are a new person. You're not just someone that believes certain things. You are a new person. He knows your struggle. He understands. And he offers to you a new identity. Listen, if you're a new person in Christ... No longer do you have to be defined by what you have done. And no longer do you have to be defined by what's been done to you. You are new in Christ. He offers heavenly manna and a white stone with your name on it. A special name. A new name. A new identity. He knows your pain. He knows 
he knows your struggle. He, he, he knows the things that they say. He knows the things that they've done. And he is here this morning. For any and all who are willing to trust in him, if you will trust in him, then he will proclaim you forever to be clean. Forever you are loved. Forever you are forgiven. And forever you can be made new. Let's pray.